0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Carol Miller. When a book comes across your desk called The End of Sex, you tend to take a second look. This particular book is by Henry Greeley, a law professor at Stanford, who doesn't actually argue that we're going to stop having sex, but that sex for reproduction's sake, that may be in its twilight years. And to be fair, it had a very good run. But the 21st century could mark the end of humans having kids the old-fashioned way. Hank Reilly is the author of *The End of Sex and the Future of Human Reproduction*. Hank, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: So uh, let's talk about this idea of the end of sex, at least for you know reproduction purposes. To a lot of people, I think that's going to sound totally fantastical. What kind of timeline are you thinking about?
1: So I make a bold prediction in the book that in twenty to forty years. Most babies born to people with good health coverage anywhere in the world will not have been conceived in bed or in the backseat of a car, but will have been (laughs) conceived in a clinic. And the reason they'll do that is to make a bunch of embryos, in the book I use 100 as a rough estimate, do a whole genome sequence, look at all the DNA of each of those 100 embryos, and then pick the one they want most, mainly the one they hope will be healthiest.
0: Hmm. And we should say that to some degree, um, the idea of like having a baby in a lab, that's not the stuff of science fiction. Uh, That's already happening. Like if you have undergone in vitro fertilization, if you know somebody who has, it wasn't sex that allowed them to have a kid. It was a lab.
1: Right. And that's actually one and a half percent of all the babies born in the U.S. in any given year are the result of in vitro fertilization. Hmm. Plus, you've got another uh, number, and we don't know quite how big this is, but probably another 1% or so who are the result of artificial insemination, mm-hmm. which, again, is not exactly the old-fashioned way of mm-hmm. sex. Mm-hmm. So it's not new, but I think it's going to go from about 2 to 3% of births to over 50% of births in, as I say, 20 to 40 years. Hmm.
0: In some ways, it feels like, you know, people talked about the sexual revolution in the 60s and that the introduction of the pill allowed people to move from having sex largely for reproduction to having sex sometimes for reproduction. And and I feel like this is the end of it, you know, having sex almost never for reproduction.
1: Having sex frequently, but almost never for reproduction, right, right, I think, right. is where the future is likely to go.
0: Right. So right now, we have the capability of determining all sorts of things, uh, rare genetic diseases like Huntington's disease or the existence of mutations like um, the BRCA1 and 2 genes that increase your risk for breast cancer. So why isn't everybody right now uh, testing for those things?
1: Two reasons, cost and inconvenience. So the cost of doing whole genome sequencing, of looking for all of these different genes, is still pretty high. Mm-hmm. Uh, to do it at a rate of accuracy that you'd be comfortable making medical decisions mm. from is maybe five to $6,000. Now, it used to be half a billion dollars 15 years ago, mm. and it was $50,000 eight years ago. So it's now down to about $5,000. That's going to get lower. So it'll get be cheaper to test not just for one or two things or five or six things, but to test for everything that your genome can tell you about that embryo, Hmm. whether it's diseases, whether it's cosmetic traits, whether it's a little bit of information about future behavior, and whether it's a boy or a girl. Hmm. But the other problem, and I think the more serious rate-limiting issue here, is that to do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, you've got to do in vitro fertilization. Because you have to have that embryo at day somewhere between 3 and 6 So you can take some cells off of it and test them. If you get pregnant the old-fashioned way, if you conceive the old-fashioned way, at day three through six, that embryo is halfway down one of the two fallopian tubes. Good luck finding it. Mm. So you need IVF in order to know where the embryo is, in order to be able to test it. And IVF is a pain. Yeah. It's expensive. It's literally
0: painful, right? I mean, I I know people have been through it, and it's literally very unpleasant thing to do.
1: So I got to say, this is one of those areas where life is deeply unfair. It's not so unpleasant for the guy. Mm -hmm. Providing a sperm sample, usually not unpleasant or risky. But for the woman, uh, what you have to go through to ripen lots of eggs and Mm -hmm. then have them harvested is weeks and weeks of shots, mood swings, cramps, and there's even some physical risk. About half of 1% of women who go through egg harvest, egg retrieval in any given year, end up hospitalized as a result. Mm-hmm. And it's expensive and usually not covered by insurance. So all those things, since you have to do IVF in order to do this pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, that's going to hold back pre-implantation genetic diagnosis until sometime in the next 20 to 40 years. The second big technological change my book foresees comes through, one is cheap whole genome sequencing, but the second one is making eggs and sperm when necessary from skin cells. Hmm. We can take skin cells and turn them into what are called induced pluripotent stem cells. They're kind of like those human embryonic stem cells, which have been so famous and controversial, but they're not made from embryos. They're made from living people's skin. And then you can try to turn those into brain cells, kidney cells, liver cells, heart cells, and eggs and sperm.
0: Okay. So is what you're saying that people are going to be able to go into a lab, you're two you know, partners in this relationship We want to have a kid. You're going to be able to go into a lab, and they're going to be able to scrape some skin cells off of you and turn it into egg or sperm?
1: They won't scrape it so much. They'll do a 2-millimeter punch biopsy. They'll take a little circular bit of your skin out, so small that you just need a Band-Aid to cover it up. And if you were a mouse, we could do this today. It's already been done in mice, both with eggs and sperm. No one has taken it that far with humans yet. People haven't made fully mature eggs or sperm from humans, but they're moving in that direction.
0: And when do you think that this is going to be feasible and we're going to be able to do this?
1: Sometime, well, it depends on on how much effort is put behind it and Mm -hmm. also on what countries' regulatory schemes look like. Right. I think scientifically, you could probably get there with humans within the next five to 10 years. I also think and I deeply believe this, it'll take another 10 years of safety testing Mm -hmm. because you really want to make sure that making eggs this way leads to healthy babies. If you rush into a way of making eggs that turns out to make 10% of the babies seriously disabled, that's an awful thing. Mm -hmm. So, One reason I set my prediction 20 to 40 years into the future was because I think it'll take at least a decade or more of safety testing before anyone should be willing to try this and before the FDA or any FDA equivalent in other countries should be willing to approve it.
0: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Hank Greeley, a professor of law at Stanford and the author of The End of Sex and the Future of Human Reproduction. So let's get into some of the potential controversies here. Um, You talked about the expense attached to, like, genome sequencing. Obviously, we've seen that come way down from millions of dollars to, you know, well under $10,000 now. Are you worried that even if the cost comes down to $1,000, to $500, that we are entering into a world where you've got this sort of bifurcation. People who are like, yep, I've got I saved up my thousand dollars to get my test, and I'm gonna be really careful here, and I wanna make sure that my child is optimized to, you know, be successful. And people who don't have the money or just sort of don't think about things in that way and and just have sex and they have children a different way. And then you slowly kind of bifurcate these two groups of people.
1: I think that is a real and important concern. Maybe the biggest concern about this is its effects on fairness between different human groups. On the other hand, and this is really important, this is embryo selection. This is picking one out of a 100 embryos that two people make. Mm -hmm. All you can get from an embryo from two people is what those two people have to give it. We're not talking about super babies or designer babies here. We don't even know what genetic variations exist for super babies. We know a lot of genetic variations that cause very low intelligence. We don't know anything about variations that cause higher than average intelligence. So, the babies will be healthier, they're not going to be a different species, they'll be my guess is 10 to 15% healthier. Adding that onto the already health differentials between rich babies and poor babies would right. be a bad thing. Right, right. But it's not going to be a speciation event. We're not going to turn into two different human species. However, I am an optimist. I think people will be rational enough that ultimately, not at the very beginning, but after a few years, this will be free for parents. Hmm. And I don't actually think that's going to be because everyone says, "Well, for reasons of equity and fairness and justice, we need to make it free. I think there'll be a much more compelling reason. It's going to make health care cheaper
0: when people when we get to the point where people are routinely having embryos tested before uh, they're implanted and they're not you know having kids the old-fashioned way, what are the ethical? issues that you worry about, that you think might arise, be they political, religious, whatever they are, what sort of gets in the back of your head and, and won't, won't go away?
1: So let me give two answers to that. The five categories of issues I thought were important enough to cover in depth in the book were safety, which is a real ethical issue, not just a medical issue. It's unethical to do unsafe things, especially to babies who never consented to it. It's fairness... We've touched a little bit on the economic fairness, Mm -hmm. but what happens if too many parents want boys and not enough want girls? There are fairness issues there. And what happens, and to me this may be the actual hardest question, what about fairness to people who already have been born with genetic diseases or people who are among the few who are born with them in the future? If you've got, say, Down syndrome and there aren't very many more Down syndrome babies being born, Mm -hmm. that affects how much research is going into Mm -hmm. your condition and how Mm -hmm. many doctors know how to help you Mm -hmm. and how much social support you have, Mm -hmm. as well as telling you the society thinks you probably shouldn't have been born. I think those disability issues are huge. I think there are big issues of coercion. Should governments, insurers, mothers-in-law, fathers-in-law, husbands be able to forced decisions. They're big issues about family structure. I mean, the gay and lesbian genetic parents are only one small part of it. If you could make eggs from a 50-year-old woman, you could make eggs from an 80-year-old woman, you could make eggs from an eight-year-old girl, you could make eggs from an eight-week-old embryo, Mm -hmm. or from a woman who's been dead for eight years, whose cells were carefully frozen. Mm-hmm. You can get some very strange family structures then. Plus, even in a, a more conventional family structure, how does it change things when parents say, hey, I picked you because your genes look like you're going to be a great NFL quarterback, mm-hmm. and you say you want to be a poet? Already, <laughs> you know, parents put <laughs> the expectations on kids. The plan has already been kids. written. Sorry. Right. But the last of the five, so safety, fairness, coercion, family structure, family issues. The last one I think is politically the most important, although intellectually I don't find it very powerful. And that's just, um, it's not natural. It's not what God intended.
0: Right. It's not the way we've done, always done things.
1: Yeah, so there's a, a religious version of it, which is that's playing God. And there's a more secular version of it that that's not natural. Mm-hmm. I think that will be very strong with a lot of people. And even in 50 years, I don't think every couple will want to make their babies this way. Mm-hmm. Some will either for religious purposes, philosophical purposes, romantic purposes, You know, so much more romantic to just roll the dice, or because they're teenagers and getting pregnant in the backseat of cars is what they do. <laughs> Not everybody <laughs> is going to do this. Um, and I'm okay with that, but I do think there will be political opposition to it today How powerful that opposition will be will vary from country to country. Mm -hmm. In East Asia, I don't think it'll be very strong. In the United States, I think there will be some of it, particularly in some more conservative states. But overall, we'll let parents do what they want to do to get healthier babies. Mm -hmm. The Vatican City, not likely to legalize this anytime soon. So there'll be a lot of variation. But I think the main argument won't be the arguments I I take most seriously, the safety, the a fairness, the coercion arguments. It'll be these arguments about naturalness. And I just have to say there's nothing particularly natural about you and me talking to each other 2,500 <laughs> miles apart and then having it broadcast to people all over the world on radio and on the internet. There's not much about our lives that's natural. So you got to say more than it's not natural because there are damn few humans out of the 7.3 billion of us who live natural lives, even agriculture, isn't really natural.
0: Since your timeline is, you know, 40 years in the future that you think, you know, people are going to be sort of having babies in labs, why should people now who that's not part of their lives, that's not how they're going to have their children, why should they care about this right now? Sometime
1: in the next 20 to 40 years, this is going to happen. It's going to change how we have babies. It's going to change the world that all of us live in. It's not necessarily going to change my life, because I may well not be here then, but it'll change the lives of my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, the children of my friends and relatives. It's important, and I do the work I do in the hopes that if we think about and worry about the implications of new technologies early enough and well enough, we are less likely... Create catastrophes. I used to say we could maximize the benefits and minimize the harms, and I realized that was way too optimistic. (laughs) But I do think if we talk about it, we argue about it, we debate it, we study it, we're less likely to have catastrophic failures. And avoiding a few catastrophes, particularly when it comes to how we have babies, is, I think, a worthwhile goal.
0: Hank Greeley is the author of The End of Sex and the Future of Human Reproduction. He's also the director of the Center for Law and the Biosciences at Stanford. Hank, thanks so much.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you.
0: We've got more of Hank Greeley's work on our website, innovationhub.org, and more about what can be tested for right now in embryos. Greeley says that he believes that many of the political stumbling blocks to the widespread use of labs to make babies may not turn out to be quite the stumbling blocks that you'd assume. As the technology is refined, he says, it will likely first be approved for couples who are infertile. And once it's out there, doctors can deploy it for a much broader range of people.